So many of you know, you know, we moved here from Texas and something was peculiar to me when we used to go to the grocery store in Texas because it's, you know, where we were at in Texas was kind of within an hour of the Gulf Coast and we walk into the grocery store and there's this strange sensation when you walk in there because it doesn't smell like grocery stores in Oklahoma or the Midwest where I have where I had been for the years before that. And, and what I mean by that is to say that fish are a big deal when you're close to the Gulf Coast, all manner of fish, whether it be freshwater or saltwater. And there's kind of this sensation and, and there's this moment when you walk in where you're like, wow, this, this smells different. And you, but most of you are like, what in the world has Brother been talking about? I'm, I'm going to get to that. But there's this moment when you walk in and it kind of, it, it costs you because you're not expecting it, right? The smell of sea, aquatic life and seafood, the salt in the air. Well, I would imagine that what we're going to read about this morning in the scriptures probably smelt a little bit like that. And you're going to say, what do you, what do you mean? Well, remember that Jesus had just, in Mark chapter 1, had just invited four different fishermen to be part of what was going to be the rest of their lives. And we're going to pick up right where we left off. So verse 21 of chapter 1 of the book of Mark, if you want to join me there, and when you find it, if you would stand in honor of God's word, Mark chapter 1, verse number 21. Before I read anything, I want you to see here very clearly, he has just called them and they have just agreed to follow him. And this verse number 21 is what happens next. It says, then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife, mother, wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and, and who the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that when we come to Scripture that we're reminded, we're reminded about how quickly and how rapidly that you will embrace us and encourage us to follow you right into a powerful, powerful thing. I pray that as we look to these Scriptures, we'll be reminded that, that you waste no time there is no loss or frivolousness in your nature. And as a result, that we don't have time to spare when it comes to following you. I pray that we would follow hard after you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I said to you that 
It probably smelled a little bit like the, the meat market, the fish, the fresh fish counter. These fishermen have lived their whole lives, and I don't know about you, but some of you love to fish, right? If you love to fish in this room, you know, look at your neighbor and say, I just can't wait to get back on the water. Hopefully you don't do it on Sunday mornings, but I mean, I understand, right? I don't know a fisherman in this, my life that's not thinking to themselves, I can't wait to find myself either on the dock or at the shore or on the boat. I just, they just can't, they can't help themselves. It's kind of like people with golf, right? But I also know that when you do that and you're any good at it and you actually catch fish and then you clean them, there comes an aroma with it. These are career fishermen that are invited into the work, and I would imagine that they probably smelled like fishermen. But you see the picture. It says that Jesus calls them and it says, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue. What happens from that point on for the rest of what we read happens in one day. He takes them to a place where he begins to teach. He encounters a man in that moment that has an unclean spirit. He casts that spirit out. We see this, this continuing thing. They come back to Peter's house where his mother-in-law is sick. He deals with that. And then, then as a result after that, then the whole community just, con- just completely collapses on him and just comes in. And there's this moment where it's like immediately, immediately there's this moment where you just see these things are happening day, thing after thing. And you're like, Man, a day in the life following Jesus, especially this early into your calling, might seem like a steep ramp up. But, but rest assured, you know, the first point in your bulletin this morning is that the learning curve is vertical. When you begin to follow Jesus, everything changes. I want you to look at your neighbor and say that. The learning curve is vertical. I, I walked into some classes in the course of my life where the learning curve was straight up. When you do foreign language study, oftentimes the learning curve is just vertical. Uh, I, I was in a Spanish class at Oklahoma Baptist University. I did not go very far in Spanish. I'm not like Brandon. I'm not good at it. I'm, I'm trying to learn. I'm like, a, like an infant when it comes to Spanish. And he laughs at me because I give him phrases or words, and he's like, you're wrong. But there's moments when I would walk in, and I walked in there, and the professor started talking in Spanish, and he never stopped. And I was like, this is Spanish 1, right? And I looked at somebody and said, this is Spanish 1. And they're like, yeah, this is Spanish 1. And, and the prof- professor, I asked him later, I said, you know, we don't know Spanish. And he's like, but you'll never learn if I don't speak it. And I was like, man. I was like, so you do know English? He's like, yeah, I know English. But I'm trying to teach you Spanish, so I'm going to speak that language. And I was like, man, I was lost the whole semester. I dropped a minor in Spanish. After that, I was not interested anymore in that. But I had other classes that were equally challenging. When I did my foreign language study for Greek and Hebrew, Hebrew professor looked at us and he says, it's steep right now. He says, but if you'll hang on, you'll begin to to develop some muscles and some skills and some abilities that will help you as it tapers off. And with Jesus, it's kind of like that. When we first come into a relationship with Jesus, it is vertical. And he begins to change everything. It's like, man, all these things about my life are supposed to change? Man, it absolutely asks a lot of us. It asks a lot of each and every one of us, that it's vertical. And in this moment, it says that they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Imagine you're Peter. Imagine you're Andrew. Imagine you're John. Imagine you're in this moment where you're just these four guys that are standing there with him and you're like, we're with him. Because he said, follow me. And he starts to teach and you're like, we're just going to stand here and listen. 
you know, kind of like, you know, that's the defensive pose when guys don't know what to do. They cross their arms, and some of you are crossed up now. You might be cold too, but you kind of, or your hands in your pocket, or you, you're kind of defensive. I can imagine that's what these guys look like, just kind of standing in the background like, okay, what now? And they're kind of, we're not sure about this guy. And he starts teaching. And then what comes next is absolutely amazing. As he enters the synagogue and taught, he says, and they were astonished at his teaching. This is a word that oftentimes when it, when it, when it pops up in the scriptures, especially concerning the New Testament, when you see this word, it's the same word that is supposed to capture the moment of when a magic trick is done and your mind is blown. Astonished. I have a friend who's a magician. I love this guy. He's, he's great. I've had lots and lots of encounters with him, and sometimes I'll just go and visit him. I can't, you know, anymore. We don't live close now, but I would go and visit him, and he would just be working on something, and he would just do something. And I'm like, how did you do that? He's like, I can't tell you that. I'm like, why can't you tell me that? And he's like, then it wouldn't be magic anymore. And he would always say, this is nothing, nothing spooky or nothing, you know, supernatural about what I'm doing. He's like, but the illusion, the astonishment comes from you not knowing and not being able to reconcile it. Well, I guarantee that when, the, when these four people who've been called by Jesus begin to watch him teach, they can't reconcile what he's saying with what they've heard. Much the way that when we read the Bible, we cannot reconcile what's being said here and how it connects with the world around us because they look so very different and it's supposed to look different. What Jesus expects of us, the vertical learning curve goes straight up and it changes everything. If you are very similar to what you were before you knew Jesus, I have questions because it was radically different for me. It ought to be radically different than the world around us. And the people when they begin to encounter me after I encountered Christ, they were like, you're different. And it's this astonishment that happens. It settles in on people, and they're like, wow, you are different. And I, I hope that the same testimony will be true of each of us because Christ is a difference maker in us, putting us in a place where we, we are just something else. It goes on to describe his teaching. It says, at his teaching, that's how they were astonished, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They had been listening to teaching their whole life, but when Jesus began to teach, the scripture describes him as this teacher. And when we look and we study about him, they describe him as the teacher par excellence. He's the best teacher, right? Some of us can think back over the course of our academic careers, whether we just went through grade school or high school or we went on past that, where there's a, there's a teacher or a professor, there's somebody in our life that we're like, man, that person could teach. And it changed me. I had a New Testament professor that brought notebooks to his class but wouldn't take my eyes off of him long enough to write anything down. All I could do was scribble notes when he would breathe in the margin of my Bible and try to take notes that way. I mean, I have fewer notes from his classroom than most of the classes that I've ever taken because you just couldn't help. He was so spellbinding. You were just like, wow, this guy's amazing. He's amazing. And that's how Jesus was. When people listen to him, they're like, he is not like the others. It's why we are magnificently drawn to him. I want you to read with me because what happens next, there's something I want you to see in here that maybe is a little subtler than you realize. Verse 21. Now there was a, a man in the synagogue. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and there's a man there with an unclean spirit. 
And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And there's this picture of this moment where something is happening when you're like, this is the last place you would expect this image for this weird thing to be happening inside the place where people come to worship God. And yet it felt comfortable enough for this man to be there because there was no threat until Jesus walked into the room that anything bad was going to happen to it. You know what that tells me? There's only one right way to do church going forward. And that is to have Jesus at the heartbeat and the center of all of it. Because if we don't, then we invite an opportunity where this kind of thing feels comfortable here. And it's not supposed to be. When Jesus walks in and he teaches with authority, automatically the man with the unclean spirit is like, hey, this is not okay. A little turf war begins to set up, right? Why are you here? Are you here to destroy us? And I want you to know the answer is yes. I mean, you think I should just end right there? Yes, Jesus has come to destroy the unclean nature of our lives and everything else. We should just end there. Because that's a good enough point to end on, right? You see it? There's something that you need to know. There are moments where I know, as a matter of, of just personal conviction, that I know that God is beginning to do some pretty powerful things in the world around us. We see it. Yeah, if you're paying attention to what's happening, college campuses across the world, uh, even in the nature of, of our church and things that are happening here, man, some things are changing. It makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? People got up this morning, they're like, well, what's going to happen today? Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen today. We're going to shine all of our light on Jesus. Why? Because that's how church moves forward. That's how things change. And when that begins to happen, the world around us begins to, to, to buckle and to curtail, it has problems. And also the devil will start to just, he will start to attack because he doesn't want us to change. He doesn't want the next leg of the journey to be more about Jesus than it has been. He's nervous. And what do you do when you get nervous? You go on the offense? I, I will tell you, you look around. There are a number of things that, that have occurred just in, just in a short period of time that I'm looking at my, my, my situation, and our situation, and the, the situation as a whole, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we've aggravated the devil. But you know what I know? Go to one of the churches that never aggravates the devil, and you will feel as dead when you get, when you get out of there as you did when you walked in. And you're like, man, I don't know about this uncomfortable stuff. Well, I'm going to tell you what, if you get close to Jesus, the enemy's going to have a problem. If he doesn't have a problem with you, you're probably not close enough to Jesus. So if you have a convenient and comfortable and comfortable life and comfortable existence, you have to ask yourself a question. Am I close enough to Jesus that he's protecting me from all of it? Or if I'm far enough away from him that the devil doesn't seem to care? Because I suspect that it's usually the latter. I had a friend growing up just on the edge of Tulsa, and John used to say that you know how when you, you go to prepare for an opposing team and you do a scouting report, whatever sport it's at, usually you identify their stars right off the bat. You know, whenever we watch the, the 
television programming about any of the, the football, baseball, basketball games that we want to watch, they'll always talk about the statistics of the star on the other team. They'll always talk about the coach's game plan to kind of mitigate whether or not that athlete can be great. And this guy used to tell me, his name was John, by the way, and he used to say this was his testimony. And, and growing up in church, he'd say, I want to be the guy that loves Jesus so much that whenever the devil is making his game plan, he's got my picture on the locker room wall. I mean, Jesus has in, introduced this bit of teaching with four guys that he has just introduced, and immediately there's this unclean spirit in the room, and there's a mess, and it is uncomfortable. Verse 25. And this is key. It says, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. There's only one right way to deal with this stuff. is to get Jesus right in the center of it. Now, I'm going to give you a practical preaching and, and teaching tip from Brother Ben. If you feel like that you're under attack and that there's spiritual stuff in your life, and there's spiritual stuff happening at church, and there's spiritual stuff happening in your community, and you feel like there's a war that's happening around you, a little advice. Talk to Jesus all day long about it. I can remember early on in my, in my kind of in formative years of my theological understanding of, of how to behave whenever I kind of felt like there was a lot of spiritual warfare around me, what I would say was, you know, well, I'm going to tell the devil what for. And then I began to realize that if I start talking to the devil and I've stopped talking to God, I can't beat the devil. And neither can you. But I know that when you read Colossians, it says that Jesus beat the devil with two sticks. The cross. And he whipped him right out of the room and told him to get gone. And I'm going to tell you that that's all we've got. You have one weapon to deal with the spiritual warfare in your life, and that is to be close to Jesus, period. You want the, the, the things around you to quiet down? You need Jesus to speak these words into the moment. Be quiet and come out of him. It says immediately, that the picture here is, and when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. I love this picture, and I want you to get this with me. Understanding who Jesus is is understanding the magnitude of this kind of spiritual matter is it's pivotal for us. Why? Because we have to see this picture in a, in a very clear way. The unclean spirit is not able to reject Jesus' request. Did you hear what I just said? I know this is very, very, you know, spiritual warfare kind of moment in the conversation, but I want you to hear it with me. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and when he speaks to the demons, they have to obey him because he's in charge. You don't have that kind of authority. You have a relationship with the one who has it. Ask him for it. Ask him to do it because when he takes care of it, it's taken care of. I always love when you study the book of Job and you talk about the, the moment where there's this dialogue between God and, and Satan and there's this, this picture. And when the Lord God had summoned all of the angels, including the fallen angel, Satan, he has to come. He has no choice. That's what God being God is. He's in charge of everything. And Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we have this picture of him, and he, when he speaks to these moments, that is immediate, the response. Verse 27 is point two in your bulletin, by the way. It says, then they were all amazed. 
We should be amazed at what Jesus is doing. That's point number two. We should be amazed. You should be amazed that when you see Jesus working, it should inspire you to see it and say, there's nothing like Jesus. And I come to church to celebrate it and worship in the midst of people. My prayer for our worship team this morning was that they would worship Jesus and that it would invite you to worship with them. This is not a performance. They worship in our midst, and we worship alongside of them. It should be this way going forward. I'm excited about the possibility of each and every week gathering together with other people that want to worship Jesus. And we see this moment, this astonishment of what Jesus is doing in our midst. It goes on to say, after they were amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately, his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Jesus is famous immediately. Does Jesus ever have trouble drawing a crowd? No. But Jesus right in the middle of our church service. Then we'll have to ask questions about, we'll have to ask questions about where to put them, not, you know, what to do with the empty space. We, we, we intentionally see it, don't we? You should anticipate it when you come, that Jesus can absolutely move in a place like this in such a way that people want to come and know more about it. Verse 29, we continue on as we understand something here, and there's something that's really neat that's happening. Jesus has taught in the synagogue. Jesus has dealt with a very spiritually unsettling matter. He has made those that are following him become completely astonished. And then in verse 29, it says, now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Man, this is a full day, isn't it? Simon, by the way, is Peter. It says, with James and John. There's all four of them that Jesus invited to follow him. It says, but verse, verse 30, but Simon's wife's mother lay sick with fever, sick with a fever. Now, this is a lot of confusion for some people because some people have been taught that Peter didn't, wasn't married, but it clearly says here that Simon is Peter, and Peter is Simon, and, and Simon Peter had a mother-in-law, which means he had been married. And they told him about her at once, and she's got, she's got a sickness, an illness. And you're like, wow. This moment, it went from very much like corporate body work, what Jesus was doing at the temple, the synagogue, his teaching, very personal. Now we're at Peter's house, and his mother-in-law's sick. You're like, so what's going to happen next, right? And they told him about her at once, so he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and immediately fever left her. It goes on to say she served them, and I'm like, man, that's a bonus. I don't know about you, but most of us, when somebody's just got over illness, we're like, just, we'll take care of it. You see, one of the things that I think is a disconnect in the church is that we oftentimes believe that Jesus is capable of doing something, and we see him in the temple, and we're like, yeah, of course Jesus can do that. And then when it gets real personal, we're like, but we're not sure if he'll do this. And we're like, why is that such a disconnect? It shows us in the same day he's dealing with corporate issues, and now he's dealing with personal issues. Point number three in your bulletin, if you're following along, is Jesus is working corporately and personally. And this is something for you and me to see, is that it's not just something that's for the church, but it's also a, a, an intentional thing in our midst. 
that Jesus is working in our midst. It's not conceptually out there. It's practically in here. It's both. And the problem is, is that we oftentimes believe that it's possible, but we don't believe that it's probable. And I'm not going to tell you that, that all of my prayers are answered in the affirmative, but what I'm saying is, is that I don't leave any of it up to debate. I ask him for it all. And I let his will be done. If he decides to work personally in the things that are happening with my life, praise God. And if he decides to tell me no, praise God. And if I ask corporately, I ask that God's will be done and that Jesus be magnified in the midst of it. And if he says yes, then praise God. And if he says no, then praise God. And the point is, is that I put it all to him. I expect in the, per in the personal as well as in the corporate to ask him for the things. Why? Because when I see the scriptures, I see him doing both. I see him working corporately and I see him working privately, personally. And what happens next will blow your minds. Verse 32, the day is not even over. It says, at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him some sick people. Is that what it says? No, it says all sick people. And you're like, they did what? This had to be a moment Turn back the chapter with me just barely in your memory. Jesus had just stepped right up to Simon and Andrew, that is Peter and Andrew and John. And there's this moment where James and John and Andrew and, and Peter are hanging out, working, and Jesus is like, follow me. And now, within a day's matter of time, they're on the, on the, the, the cusp of just learning and cutting their teeth on what they're supposed to be doing. Jesus is just taking them vertically, straight up into the unbelievable and he is just working all the time, and he is not wasting any time. He's moving from thing to thing to thing. And when he stops and he rests for any moment, the crowd comes to him. And you're like, wow. You don't think that it's important that the work of God is being done all around us all the time, then you are missing it? Because not only did he bring all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and it says, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Man, this is, this is uber spiritual stuff, Brother Ben. And I'm like, it's also church. And I think sometimes we think of church as a club or an organization. We forget that it's a spiritual high point in our week, a launching off place for what comes next. And if we don't take what we're learning here and apply it to our everyday life, then we are missing a launching opportunity for us to do the next thing. We are missing the high point of powerful engagement of God in our midst. And we're doing it systematically because it just built it into something that we normally do. And it's a mistake. We should look at Jesus and say, I know I've only been on the task for just a few minutes, but take me vertical and let's find out. What do you want to do next? And then be astonished when he blows your mind at what he's doing. Because that's what's happening. And there's, problem there's a problematic thing in our lives where we see this and we say, well, that happened in the Bible, but I'm not sure it could happen now. Let me give you a truth for you to hold on to. It is theologically bankrupt for you to say that it could happen in the Bible, but it couldn't happen now. If it happened in the Bible, God is still very much capable of it. 
this measure of healing that's happening in the midst of Jesus when the whole city is kind of collapsing in on where he's at. They're gathered together, and it says, then he healed the many who were sick with various diseases. And I like that it says that it's kind of this blanket that he throws over the illness. Mark just captures this in his writing. He's like, he killed the variety. I mean, just, 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 he's crushing it. You know, that's the expression, right? He's killing it. The illness in the community, he's just dealing with every little bit of it. And it's just a variety of stuff. And you're like, wow. It goes on to talk about that he also deals with the spiritual stuff. So the physical limitations and the spiritual stuff, he's dealing with both. And he cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak. And there's this, this really interesting statement. He says, because they knew him. And I always love this picture. And you see this happen a couple different times in Mark where the demons have this kind of this inside track to who Jesus is. I really want you to think about this. Really focus with me on this. They know who he is. And Jesus, he, he doesn't let them talk about him. Why? Because he wants you to know him and understand him personally before you take somebody else's word for it. And the question is, is do you see Jesus for who he really is? He is inviting each and every one of us not only to be forgiven of our sins, but to follow hard after him. And in doing so, watching the world around us be transformed by him. But most of us, we want that salvation piece. But we're not so sure about that lordship part. We don't know how they work together. I say it over and over and over again, and you'll, you'll hear me, you'll get sick to death of me hearing, hearing me say it until you embrace it. The Bible in the New Testament uses the word Savior to describe Jesus 30 plus times. That's significant. He wants to rescue you. It uses the word Lord to describe Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit over 600 times. He's trying to send a clear message that he is in charge and that we should follow him and it should change everything. And that's the magnitude of what he's asking of us today, that when we see the warfare around us and that he has invited us in, that we should be astonished by him, but we should also expect that he can work corporately and personally and that as a magnitude, point number four, that we should be inspired to share Jesus with everyone. That's what happened after the personal thing was happening at Peter's house, that the news began to spread and people began to share about who Jesus was and as a result, people are drawn to him. Your personal testimony is magnifying the person who Jesus is and it's drawing people in. It's drawing people to see this Jesus that you've come to know a little bit about and seeing him in the lens of who he is, understanding that this happened in one day you're like, man, what could be accomplished if we could give Jesus one day that people could come to him, that lives could be changed, that worship could happen, and it could spawn more worship, and that we could be run over to the place where we're like, where are we going to put them all? And we're like, man, I can't think of a better problem. I told somebody earlier this week, I looked at him, I said, you know, at a clerk behind a store, and they're kind of, buying something and they're kind of running out of something. And I was like, that's a good problem, right? They're kind of looking at me like, no, no, I need to have stock for you. I was like, no, your goal is to sell out every day. As a pastor, you know, one of the goals is, is that every seat is filled. Why? Because that's a good problem to have. If every seat is filled, we, we, are, we are getting an opportunity to point Jesus, you know, and just people to point right at Jesus and say, look at him. 
Our goal is not to have people look at us. Our goal is to lift this whole place up so the people will look to the heavens and see Jesus lifted above us. As the scripture tells us that if he's raised above us, that all people will be drawn to him. And the goal for us ought to be that. We, we are seeing this moment where four people who kind of smell like the fish market are witnessing the miracle. So what in the whole world can't you accomplish? Because you don't smell probably half as bad as these guys did. Look at your neighbor and say, you don't smell as bad as these guys did. Well, that might not be, if it's not true, you don't have to say it. Okay? What in the world can't you accomplish? You just have to believe that Jesus is capable of doing amazing things in the world around us and follow him. And whatever he's doing next, say, I want to do some more of that. And then realize that it's for everybody out there and in here. And it's the whole story. We're going to stand in a minute. I'm going to draw this to an invitation. And when I do that, when I ask you to stand, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And that response is to say this. Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you know him as the one who is authoritative over even the demons? Or just the guy that rescued you from your problems? Because he's both. And one is superior to the other. And when you figure out which one is more important, then you'll understand his lordship. See, the guy who rescues me is important, but man, the guy who's in charge is way more important. So I posit this question to you. I put it right out there in front of you. Do you know Jesus is Lord today? Have you surrendered to him as being in charge of everything? If not, then when we open the invitation, you're welcome to come and talk to him about that because I'm glad that he's rescued us, but man, I want him to be in charge of us. Would you stand with me today? Would you bow your heads? Lord, we thank you for an opportunity, Lord, just to come to you and just to cry out and just to ask you to rescue us first. But Lord, don't stop there. Lord, we need a leader to lead us and we need to follow you. That everything that we do ought to be predicated upon the fact that you've invited us in, not just to be rescued, but to also be led. We need to follow you. I pray that we as a church would commit to following you in every single aspect of what we're doing. Asking you to drive out from our midst anything that's unpleasing to you. And to incorporate in, Lord, all the people that need to hear about you see them changed one by one. We're working in our homes and working in our church and working in our community. We want to see more of that. We ask for this in Jesus' name.